you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse number 18. Have you considered why it is that we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th? Through the years, I've bumped into this question a few times. Maybe you've seen something in social media, read an article speculating as to the specific birth date of Jesus. It's not entirely important. I would suggest to you that it, it really is not a big deal at all that we identify the specific date on which Jesus is born. What is important is the simple fact that Jesus was born and that his birth is the signal of God's favor towards sinners in such need of salvation. And I would caution you that for whatever reason, it seems that somewhat radical groups, even cults, tend to gravitate towards speculation about the exact date of Jesus' birth. I shared in the earliest service, I've been bumping into for nearly 20 years now this cult in Arkansas that makes a big deal out of things like this. In fact, I told an Arkansas joke but there were such groans from the Arkansas people that I committed to not tell it again. Although I will note that to their shame, most of them came to me after service and said, you can only tell that joke about people from Alabama. And so you Alabama, Arkansas people, y'all work all that out in your own time. But the gist of, of, of the effort that is made on the part of cults, and I say that in the plural, it's not just a singular cult that seems to have attempted to leverage speculation about things like that is to say that, see, if we can demonstrate that Jesus was not born on December 25th, doesn't that call everything into question? But historical precision was not the purpose of early believers in establishing December 25th as the day we would celebrate the birth of Jesus. In fact, in Greek culture, the predominant culture, Roman culture, in the fourth century as Christmas was established as to be celebrated on December the 25th, the focus was to supplant various pagan celebrations. The winter solstice was celebrated on December 21st, and a variety of festivals and celebrations would ensue and follow after in the days after the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, the darkest day of the year. And so the agenda of Christians was to supplant those pagan celebrations with a, 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 a meaningful, justifiable Christian celebration in their place, not unlike what we do with fall festival or harvest festival, seizing upon an overtly pagan celebration in Halloween, leveraging enthusiasm for that day in order to advance the message of the gospel. Fourth century Christians sought to seize upon overtly pagan celebrations and to leverage the spirit of the season in order to advance the message of the gospel, to give focus to the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, mildly laying aside the glories of heaven that he might dwell in our midst for the purpose of our salvation. Over the course of time and history, we have all of these little parasitic attachments that have connected themselves to the celebration of Christmas. And we find ourselves to some extent right back in the same place those early celebrators of Christmas were sort of combing through all of these holiday attachments to ensure that the story of Christmas, the message of Christmas, the reason for the season, as we say in cliche terms, is kept front and center for believers in the gospel and advanced even among those who may not themselves believe. 
So we give our time and attention this morning to the story of Christmas, the birth of our Savior Jesus and its significance in each of our lives. Matthew 1, beginning in verse number 18. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read God's word together. The Bible says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they'd seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Here Matthew provides some explanation for the passages that we've been studying together over the past several weeks. He connects the birth of Jesus with the promises of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God promised that a son of David would reign on the throne of Israel eternally. In fact, the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 are given to drawing the very connections that exist genealogically between Jesus and David, the king of Israel. He notes that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And now Bethlehem, this low-esteemed little village outside of the city of Jerusalem, would be the birthplace of this king. Already in verse 18, with 
the mere reference, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. There is the packaging and importation of all of the promises of the Old Testament. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a way of making reference to Jesus as the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Again, the yes and the amen to all the promises of God. His birth unfolds under supernatural circumstances. Verse 18 continues, After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This language of engagement is far more forceful than engagement in our culture. Older translations will render the term as betrothed or betrothal to make reference to the engagement but the added element of a legally binding contract that existed between husband and wife-to-be. In our culture, engagements can be ended easily without legal ramifications, although I wouldn't advise it. But they can be ended, and there can be minimal consequence, at least minimal legal consequence. Obviously, there can be dire consequences when engagements end Abruptly, but that's not the kind of engagement in view here in our passage. Contract had been entered into when Joseph mentions in verse 19 the desire to divorce her secretly. He's speaking there not of their being in an official covenant marriage, but of the legally binding nature of the betrothal or the engagement they had entered into. She was said to have been discovered before they came together, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's quite a statement, isn't it? it? It must have been a difficult thing for folk to believe in the days of Mary and of Joseph. Sometimes I, I think we don't process the extent to which the virgin birth would have been problematic for Mary and Joseph and even Jesus in his ministry. This is not the kind of thing that was kept in close quarters and then celebrated more broadly after his resurrection when the disciples were emboldened by the now living Lord Jesus Christ. This was something that created speculation and gossip and rumor mill along the way for Jesus in his early life and even in his adult ministry. There are those examples in the Gospels, most notably the Gospel of John, where Jesus engaged in debate with the Pharisees, will say things to them like, you are of your father, the devil. He will speak of the fatherhood of God over his own personal life. There's an example in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees respond, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Now, there's something of a theological rebuttal to Jesus' claim. But implicitly, there's this subtle jab at Jesus. We remember the gossip and the rumor mill some years ago when the maiden Mary was alleged to be pregnant, conceived of the Holy Spirit. We remember, Jesus, when your mother and your father suggested that something supernatural had happened as an answer to her being with child before they were married. Joseph seems to have succumbed to that kind of skepticism himself. Verse 19 tells us that Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, 
had decided to divorce her secretly. That is until verse 20, where after considering these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This angelic vision affirms to Joseph that indeed what has been begun in the womb of the Virgin Mary is in fact of God. Something supernatural has been begun. Something historically significant. The yes and the amen to the promises of God has come. He has now mildly lay his glory by. He has clothed himself in flesh. He has come that man no more may die. He has come to take the form of a servant. In absolute humility, Jesus has stepped out of heaven, away from the glories of heaven, to dwell in the midst of a people he would save all his own. You will call his name Jesus, which means God saves. And you'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Interestingly, this is not the only name that Jesus receives in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 22 tells us that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We looked in weeks past at Isaiah's prophecy, specifically Isaiah 7 through 12, that section within the prophecy of Isaiah, where a child was promised to be born. The maiden will give birth to a son, and that son will signal that God is with the people of Israel. The immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, that promise was the birth of Isaiah the prophet's son who would signify to the people that God was with them in spite of this exile, in spite of this difficult and dark and even embarrassing episode in Israel's history, God was with them. They would not see him, they could not trace his hand, but God was orchestrating the events of Israel's history for their good and for his glory. We might say that the birth of Isaiah's son signaled that God was with his people spiritually. God was with his people metaphorically. God was with his people in spirit. But the birth of Jesus Christ, the fuller fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, would signal the presence of God with his people in a way far more powerful than the metaphorical presence of God, the spiritual presence of God, even being with his people in spirit. The birth of Jesus Christ would signal the immediate physical presence of God in the midst of his people. God had come down. They will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. And so it was when Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and they named him Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born King of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east 
and have come to worship him. Even this morning, I've had a few people ask before the services began. I don't know if they knew we were going to discuss this or they saw something in the notes, but, but they've asked, who are these men from the East? Some speculation that these were holdovers from the Babylonian captivity when Judah was carried away captive. There were leftovers in Babylon who would have saw the star, the signal of the birth of the Messiah, and would have come to Jerusalem to find the more specific location of this Messiah's birth. But every indication is that these are not Jews who had been displaced by the circumstances of life. These are Gentile men. The language of from the east is significant terminology, always used to have reference to people from neighboring nations. In fact, the language of east carries the connotation of paganism and evil and wickedness, opposition to the people of God who were in Israel. These are in all likelihood Persian magi, Persian wise men, men from the east who were informed of the Messiah and the promise of God that Jesus would come by men like Daniel, the tradition of those who had been exiled but returned to Israel. They left behind a lasting legacy of expectation that one day God would intervene in human history for their salvation and for the salvation of the nations. The story of these wise men has additionally a literary function within the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's here to tell the story of wise men seeking after Jesus. But it's, it's a way that Matthew puts brackets around the gospel to signal the interest of God in the salvation of the nations. Matthew is the most Jewish of the four gospels. It is intensely Jewish, often connecting what Jesus does with the promises of the Old Testament. It supposes that its readers are aware of Jewish culture and background and the promises of the Old Covenant. And yet it begins with the story of these men from the East seeking after Jesus. And it closes in Matthew 28, 16 through 20 by Jesus commanding the church that you should go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew's gospel, though intensely Jewish, begins with the story of Gentiles seeking Jesus and ends with this admonition from Jesus that the church would seek the Gentiles. A way of Matthew emphasizing in his forceful literary way the interest of God in the salvation of the nations. Verse 3 tells us that when, when Herod heard of the interest of these wise men, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Just last week, we looked at the insignificance of Bethlehem. The city of Bethlehem is usually the way we refer to Bethlehem, but this place would hardly register as a city. Town may be a stretch. This village outside the city of Jerusalem would be the birthplace of the King of Kings, the Son of David, who is the Son of God. It's a reminder to us of God's gladness, God's willingness 
often God's MO to take the least of these, the undeserving, the small, the insignificant, the weak, and the foolish to bind the strong and confound the wise. We are who we are in Christ, not because we were great, not because we were people of great import or significance, but because we were lowly and humble, sheep without a stray. God set his affection upon us and saved us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are and in spite of what we have so dreadfully done. God has been pleased to work in this way just as God would show the insignificant and undeserving city of Bethlehem favor and that the Messiah would be born in that lowly city in a humble stable, so God has shown the least of these favor and that in spite of our undeservedness, our unworthiness, God has lavished us with the only grace that can be known through Jesus Christ. You, Bethlehem, least among the leaders of Judah, Out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people. Verse 7 tells us that Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. We didn't, nor will we read the remainder of chapter 2, but if you're familiar with the story, you know that Herod is not being forthright about his motives here. He's no desire to worship the Messiah. In fact, he would hatch a murderous plot, and many small children in the region around Ramah would be massacred at the hands of Herod and his men. Even as an infant, a harmless babe, Jesus would be opposed by powerful people. It's a note to us of the subversive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have, by faith in Jesus, been made citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting king. Can you see how that would be, politically speaking, a subversive message? Not only does Herod oppose Jesus, but virtually every political leader engaged with Jesus or the church that would be born in the aftermath of his resurrection would oppose the people of God. It's a not-so-subtle reminder to us this morning that you oughtn't be looking for salvation or redemption or deliverance to Washington, D.C. We have been made subjects of the King of all kings, who lords over an everlasting kingdom. And get this, you can't even kill us because a single second of life we might forego in our mortal bodies, God has promised to give back in spades through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a tremendously subversive message. Herod finds it problematic. And every political leader grasping to their petty tyrancy, who's ever clearly understood the gospel, has understood the subversive nature of what Jesus has done through the glory of resurrection. We cannot be bound. We cannot be killed. We are subjects of Christ and of Christ alone, our only king. You think about the leadership, the life and leadership of Jesus. He is consistently opposed by political leaders, not just Herod, but others who would come after him. But it's not just the political powers that oppose Jesus. The religious authorities don't like him either. He robs them of their ability to guilt trip people into serving their desires. Jesus did not come saying, 
If you will give, you can receive the gift of salvation. Jesus didn't come saying, you can be saved by virtue of your personal sacrifice. Jesus did not come and say, if you'll give your undying allegiance to some religious establishment or leader, you'll receive the gift of God's grace. Jesus came saying, repent of your sin and believe on me and receive the gift of salvation, not because of things you can do, not because of your ability to contribute at some level, not because of something you bring to the table, not because of your allegiance to the establishment. Receive the gift of faith by grace and grace alone. You can see how this would subvert the petty tyrancy of the religious establishment. Dear friend, I, I don't have anything to offer save the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have, as a church, any leverage. Jesus is the steward of the gospel, and he gives it freely by grace and on the basis of faith alone. Consistently throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's hated by righteous people. He even acknowledges as much, I didn't come to save the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. It was often the thing for Jesus to spend his time with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Not that he would affirm their conduct, by the way, but that they might be radically transformed by the power of the gospel and his sheer presence among them. Jesus is often hated by those who believe themselves to have everything buttoned up and all of their ducks in order. He's crucified by religious people. That mob that cried for his crucifixion in Jerusalem were there for religious purposes. Religious people killed Jesus. He's turning the world on its head. Now, he may have been opposed by political powers, and he may have been opposed by religious authorities, hated by the righteous and crucified by the religious, but he was loved by the least of these. And he was adored by the outcast. And he was tender toward the weak. And he is a savior toward the lost. If you're here this morning and there's things about yourself that you believe commend you to God, that you believe somehow you are by virtue of your manner of life, your presentation, your lineage, your cultural background, deserving somehow of God's favor, Jesus has nothing for you. But if this morning you could acknowledge that you are broken and desperate and needy, a beggar just looking for bread, those are just the kind of people that our God is inclined toward through his son Jesus. If you're strong and full of yourself, I don't know that Jesus has anything to offer you. But if you're weak and weary and heavy laden, the tender voice of the shepherd says, come to me and I will give you rest. In verse 9, the Bible says that the wise men, having heard the king, went on their way. And there it was, the star they'd seen in the east. It led them until they came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, 
They returned to their own country by another route. This was God's means of delivering to us the greatest gift that mankind has ever known. My, my, my mama passed away this year. That would be my, my father's mother. And I, I've thought about her a little in, in recent days. And uh, y'all tell me if, if, if you've ever been on the receiving end of this conversation with your parents before. Mamaw gave the worst Christmas gifts ever. Like, they were terrible. Like socks and junk, you know? And sometimes it wouldn't even be wrapped up. Like, it'd just be in the bag from the Dollar General where it came, just all tied up. But she was not a person of great means, and she gave from the best place, and she was so sincere. And those gifts ought to have meant more to us as children than any other gift that we got, regardless of the price tag that was attached. But before she would get there to bring our gifts at Christmas, Daddy would sit us down, and he would say, my mom's on the way. She's going to bring us a gift. She's going to bring you a gift. And you're going to act like it's the best gift you ever got for Christmas, or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and I have found myself as a father having the same conversation with my children. We're about to go in this party, and they're going to give you a gift. And you are going to act like this is the best gift you have ever received, or I'm going to kill you. I, th I think we've all been touched by that kind of conversation at some point along the way. I remember being exposed to the gospel in the weeks leading up to my conversion, in the weeks leading up to becoming a Christian, hearing the message of the gospel, that Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, that he lived without sin, that Jesus obeyed every command of God, building this storehouse of righteousness that he would put in my account if I believed in him, that Jesus died on the cross in my place, that he was my substitute in death at Calvary's cross, that buried outside of Jerusalem, he was raised again on the third day. I remember hearing that and considering that, thinking about that message, meditating on it, evaluating it from a logical and reason, a rational perspective, can this be true? Is this true? Am I moved by this message? What, what, what evidence can attest to the truthfulness of this message? And coming to a place of saying, I, I affirm this. I believe this. I think this is right. And wondering, now what do I do in response to that message? I, I wrestled with, and I'm not sure we're always clear, as to how we are to receive the gift of God's salvation. Packaged in the most simple form of the gospel is Jesus' brief statement, repent and believe. Repentance often in our culture carries with it the connotation of, of begrudgingly letting go of certain things. When you think repentance, you probably think being dragged, kicking and screaming, but that is not what repentance is indicative of. Repentance is about beholding Jesus and counting him as better than any of the sinful, fleeting pleasures this world could ever offer. Repentance is a glad-hearted letting go of the things of this world in order to lay hold of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repenting of sin Believing on him, those things happen simultaneous. When you believe on him, when you see him 
for who he is. You cannot but see him as better than anything this world has to offer. Paul states it in summary form in Romans chapter 10, describing our response to the message, how we receive this great gift of salvation. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul's on to something. He's astute in the way he frames the response. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. But listen, this is no magical incantation. Paul says, you must believe in your heart. These are not two separate and distinct acts. Our confession that Jesus is Lord must be born out of a heart that sincerely believes that God has raised him from the dead. In that brief explanation, Paul provides us with all we need to know as to how to receive this great gift of God's salvation. Sometimes in our culture where everyone celebrates Christmas, it creates this implied idea that everyone receives the Christmas gift, the gift of God's salvation. But this great gift, bundled and packaged for us in swaddling clothes in a Bethlehem manger, is exclusive to those who believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead and have expressed their full-on surrender to his lordship in the simple statement, Jesus is Lord. This morning, if you don't know him, but your desire is to receive the gift of God's salvation, it's as simple as that. I think of the warning of my father. You're going to be as happy about this as any Christmas gift you've ever received, or I'm going to kill you. God is not quite as violent in his expression, but no doubt the outcome of rejecting this great gift is no less worrisome. There are but two ways. There is the way of everlasting life to be had through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way of everlasting death, the consequence of having rejected the gift of God's great salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your kindness toward us, Lord, for your tenderness to sinners. God, I, I pray that you would prick the undeserving heart, help us to see our desperate need, Help us to know, God, give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to discern that only, only Jesus, only, only Jesus can turn the course of our life and change our eternal destiny. God, help us to find our rest in him. Seek the lost sheep among us, God. Search, over, search us over and find the weak and the weary and the heavy laden, the lost, and grant them rest. Stir the hearts and affections of your bride, the church, that we might worship and adore you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.